it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Situation in the Story podcast, where you get to listen in on compelling conversations with authors about their latest work and what's behind it. I'm your host, Chris Moore, a queer writer and educator living in Denver. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Why do you write? I think I write because I have to. It's it's uh, it's a compulsion, really. And um, it's been with me pretty much since uh, since I was like, I'm one of those I'm one of those writers that obnoxiously has been doing it since they were like, you know, an infant since they could. Yeah. I when I was little, I was probably like four before I could, you know, read or write and um my mom gave me one of those like little disneyland autograph books Mm, i remember those those? yeah um and i was supposed to like get mickey and goofy and donald's autographs but i just wrote squiggly lines in them like filled the pages with squiggly lines and she asked me what i was doing and i was like i'm writing a story (laughs) um (laughs) So in my mind, that's exactly what I was doing. Um, and I've been doing it ever since. But uh, I think I would, I think, I think I would not be, I would not be myself if I didn't write. I, I would not be sane if I didn't write. Yeah. <laughs> it is my, my guard against insanity, certainly. I like that. Um, I had, my parents loved antiques. We had a really old, uh, typewriter yeah like sitting in the hallway and I must have been like you know five or six same thing and I would just start typing up stories and (laughs) but I'm I'm not one of those people though that can obnoxiously say they've been writing since forever but um I can relate to that childhood like (laughs) yeah um so I've never said this before (laughs) But I have to say, your book, um, Defenestrate, am I saying that right? Yeah, you nailed it. I think it's a perfect book. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I know. I know that's a lot uh, to say, but I do. And here's a funny thing. like, um, I was sent the book electronically months ago. took me a while to figure out how to to read it electronically because of the format it was in. Mm-hmm. So for some reason, when I started reading it, I thought it was a memoir. I'm like, Oh, mm-hmm. like, this, I was like, this is 
interesting life. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. Um, and I realized I was reading a novel. So I don't know. Let's just talk a little bit for the listener that hasn't read it, what the novel is about. Um, and I would love to know how it came to be. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, well, I mean, the, the short answer, right, is that it's about falling. Um, it's about falls and falling in every form, falling in love, falling from precipices. Um, and the narrator of the novel, Marta, she's a twin, which is um, important to the story because um, at the beginning of the novel, her brother Nick falls off the balcony of his apartment. And one of the projects of her narration is understanding that fall, whether it was intentional or whether it was the result of a long-standing family curse um, that goes back several ancestors. Um, there was a great great grandfather uh, who lived in Prague who was working on renovations of the cathedral. He shoved a stonemason out of a window and he fell to his death. And ever since then, the family line has been particularly susceptible to falls and death and injury by, by fall. So, right. um, so one of the questions of the book that Marta is asking is whether her twin brother Nick's fall was uh, a result of this family curse. Right. Um, so much to be said about the idea of identity and... Um, I felt, you know, by the end of the book where that whole family curse like really kind of comes into question, I felt like my identity was shaken because I'm reading this book and I'm so invested in this story, right? That's what it is. A story that we tell ourselves about where we came from and, you know, who we are, um, Talk a little bit about that. What was your? Well, I'm really, I'm really interested in, in, in storytelling as sort of an active, um, an interactive process, and um, I love stories that actually investigate why we do tell stories, where they come from, how we pass them on to the people we care about, how we pass them on to strangers as a sort of like desperate um, quest for connection. Uh, the narrator Marta, Marta is constantly just telling strangers in bars her business and right. <laughs> relating, yeah, relating like family legends to these sort of passive listeners who are drinking alongside her. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think um, I think storytelling is so fundamental to our identity um, as members of a family, as individuals, and um, yeah, this 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 story in particular. Uh, as a project wanted to investigate those questions of like how stories make us and how we make them. Yeah. I don't often hear fiction writers talk about a book like that. Like it's wanting to investigate these problems. It feels like what the nonfiction creative nonfiction writer does. Right. So Well, I've got, I've got both um, under. Yeah, my- yeah, yeah, yeah. I do know that about you. Yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a hybrid, dual, shapeshifter of sorts. Yeah. 
that's that's interesting um i i'm always curious and when i read novels you know to what degree is it autobiographical yeah um but I, <laughs> is that so, that's what, that's the question. Yeah, true and what's not true. Yeah, kind. I mean, to what degree? Yeah. Well, I'm not a twin. Um, right. I do have an older sister. Um, I do have an older sister who came out as gay to um my conservative Christian parents. Mm -hmm. Um, they're not Catholic. I I sort of I sort of um, I don't know. I like the ancientness of. Catholicism. I right. feel like evangelical Christianity isn't as pretty. It's not as. Oh. <laughs> I'm writing a book about that, actually. Are you? Yeah. Um, well, we can. Yeah, we can chat about that. Cool. Um, but uh, so that part's real. Um, although my mother, um, think you know, think uh, not God, but you know, the powers that be, that um, she was not as as um reactive as the mother in the novel mm -hmm. uh, you know she had her she had her issues um with my sister's identity um that she was quite vocal about but um they've managed to find a way to have a like very loving relationship as adults now so um so that's good and um what else is true? Uh, I lived in Prague for 14 months. Um, so yeah, the, the Prague stuff is based on me moving around in that city for a little bit. Okay. Was that like um, a before or after kind of thing? Which came first? Do you living there or you wanting to write about? Um, yeah, I... I I lived I I went there on a whim really. Um, it was right after college. I just graduated from college. I had a friend um, in college who had done a year in Prague teaching English there, and the way he talked about it, it he just made it sound like this magical fantasy world. Um, and so my my friend and I we just packed up our stuff. And we went and made a go of it, uh -huh. um, as you only have the balls to do as like a recent college graduate, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> you have no concept of how difficult it's going to be to live in a country where you do not speak the language and like um, don't really have a very stable uh, cash flow, you know? Right. Uh, so I worked as an English teacher when I was there and I traveled around the city um, all day long um, and got to know it very well because I was traveling to uh, office buildings and schools and homes of students to deliver uh, English lessons. Okay. So sort of like the pizza delivery English lesson. Mm -hmm. um, and so I spent a huge part of my day on public transport, on trams and buses and uh, the metro and um, and walking about uh, and getting a map of the city in my mind. So it was like really imprinted on me. And I didn't I didn't write about it in fiction form for many years or even really in nonfiction other than sort of like journaling um, dreamily. But um, but yeah, it took me years to get around to writing about it. 
Mm-hmm. And this novel sort of grew out of my my project to write about Prague. Right. So <clears throat> as far as the novel, what was kind of the timeline there? How did that I don't know. I know I said it's a perfect book. I really feel that way. Um, how long does it take to write something like that? Yeah. Well, um, gosh, it's it's not an easy answer because um, the sort of seed for the book mm-hmm. uh, was a, a very short lyric essay that I wrote when I was doing my master's degree in Montana. Um, and it was for a nonfiction workshop. Um, and it was sort of just these little fragments that were all organized around, um, the idea of defenestration. So there were a lot of windows and there was, um, some talk of, uh, the Czech author Hrabel and his, his death. He fell to his death out of a hospital window. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, like the thing that was really missing from this lyric essay is that it didn't it didn't really have a character guiding it. Um, it didn't really have, it didn't really have a quest or a mission or an investigation. It was just sort of me meandering through the city. Um, and so I dusted that lyric essay off years later and I was like, these, these little vignettes are, are, are quite, you know, quite nice. Um, I think I want to, I think I want to dig a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I was here at Cincinnati getting my PhD, um, I sort of started uh, playing around with them again. And Marta emerged from them as a character. And um, not long after Marta showed up, this idea for the family falling curse showed up. And once I had that in place, um, it really was only about eight months of oh, wow. writing before I had a draft. Um, it's the, <laughs> I, it, it, you know, not to be corny, but it did like fall out of me and yeah. I, um, I've never worked that way. I mean, I, I have a novel project sort of on the back burner that I've been working on for like seven years. I'm a very slow, lengthy, um, meditative writer, but mm-hmm. this book happened quickly. Um, it was a fall and, uh, and I'm really grateful for to it because like it it yeah it's the closest I've come to a sort of like muse descending kind of situation which I've always sort of scoffed at when like when writers talk about it because that's never been my experience I feel like I I feel like I have to eke out you know like I'm a coal miner or something every sort of of yeah of what I'm working on but this was an easy write um it was a pleasurable write and I have a very special relationship to the book because it was such a, a joy and because it sort of was this um this fast and furious journey mm. so yeah well damn so what what draws you to this idea of falling why is that something that's kind of seeming seems seems like it pulled you in it did well um as, as I said that it's been a long time uh, project for me to write about Prague, it's also been a, a, a longstanding project for me to write about Buster Keaton. And I think um, 
once I sort of had the cornerstones of, of Prague and this legacy of defenestration that's a, associated with the city of Prague, um, this was sort of a famous like means of execution, which I can't even say with a straight face because it seems <laughs> so sort of comical to us in like, you know, in, in 2022 to think about like um, uh, this means of ex execution just being flinging men out of windows. Right. And, too, I presume. Right. Um, but uh, but yes, this was this was going on in the 1600s, um, and uh, yeah. So I I was once I sort of had that Prague falling legacy. I was like, oh, I'm I'm gonna get Buster Keaton in there. He's mm -hmm. the, he's the the master of pratfalls. Right. And, um, and so then I just was like. Well, here we go. You know? <laughs> I mean, I you reading the book had me going off in so many directions between looking up Buster Keaton, and right. you know, I didn't know much about him before I read your book to the point where I was like watching Pratt Fall contests on YouTube on Jimmy Jimmy Fallon's Tonight oh, Show. Beautiful. It was hilarious. Um, I that experience as a reader I love when books make me want to look things up and investigate and I'm so happy to hear you had that experience with I my had book. that big time and what was yeah. the what was the woman's name who the most beautiful fall or the most beautiful suicide yes um oh gosh now but that photograph is incredible did you look at the yes <laughs> that is oh my god you feel like 27 emotions all at once yes you're like, oh, this is beautiful. And then you're disgusted with yourself for thinking it's beautiful. And you're like, I shouldn't be looking at this, but I can't not look at this. Yep. It's, it's, yeah, no, it's intense. Wow. So the, so the falling piece kind of just, you don't have a, a personal necessarily relationship with some kind of big fall or anything. Well, you know, I, I'm a little bit clumsy natured. So okay. I think, I think no one big fall, but maybe many small falls throughout. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah constantly sort of tripping over my own feet right but, yeah um so with all those kind of historical figures and whatnot that you brought in did it take a lot of research yeah um, it did um but but none of it was very sophisticated it was <laughs> it was sort of what you were doing when you were looking up jimmy fallon clips you know right. it was a lot of just uh mm. frantic googling mm. um I, uh, I I did a lot of like sort of Wikipedia wormhole type stuff, you know, yeah. where one thing leads to another. Um, I did um, I did end up watching Werner Herzog's documentary about Julianne Kopsky's fall um, on the airplane that she survived in Peru. What? Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that one. <laughs> Crazy town and. Yeah. It gets even crazier because uh, Werner Herzog was sort of moved to create this documentary about this woman that survived. Um, gosh, it was like um, it's like a 1.2 mile fall, I believe, something crazy. And she lived and walked away from it through the jungles of Peru. Um, oh, he, he was uh, Herzog was in Peru at the time of this flight. Mm -hmm. um, filming Agira Wrath of God and he was almost on that exact same flight. Oh my um, god. Yeah. 
he had a he he had a ticket. He and his film crew had had tickets on that flight on Christmas Eve, and they got bumped because it was overbooked. Wow. So, yeah. So this was part of his impetus for seeking her out because he was, yeah, he was almost not with us. Or maybe he would have survived. <laughs> the other lone survivor, the two of them would have tramped through the jungle together. I can't believe I can't I can't believe that. I remember like no, is this, a lot of times in your book, I'm like, is this true? And I have to look it up. How can this be true? Yeah, that's probably the one time. Somebody was thankful about overbooking an overbooked right. flight. Yeah. Yes, definitely. So count your blessings next time you're at the airport. You never know. Oh, no. I have a horrible fear of flying. So. Okay. So. Well, this, now that I know this, that I could survive. <laughs> oh, so this book actually like, like gave you, <laughs> gave you courage. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe I'll be that lucky person. Um mm -hmm. Okay, so <laughs> your narrator, Marta, yeah, she's dealing with, she believes she's taking care of her twin brother because mm -hmm. it gets to a point where he's, I mean, they're both, both pretty heavy drinkers, but yes. he's drinking without her and going out and coming in the middle of the night all beat up and whatnot. So it takes this turn where... Well, I guess not a turn. She always kind of felt like a caretaker for him, but uh, there's this, I don't want to spoil too much of the book, but there's this narrative thread about how, you know, she's not sure if he fell or jumped. Mm -hmm. um, and then like at the end takes this crazy turn where mom and, brother nick are like no it's marta that needs help right now and i did it it blew the doors off like i said that sense of identity and story mm -hmm. and you were saying earlier how story storytelling is an interactive process like what do you think about the narrator was she just like completely delusional um hmm. This is like, even in, in real life, this is a, an area where I get tangled up. It's like, you know, there are many sides to every story and many perspectives and experiences. For example, having a fight with your partner, mm -hmm. um, you know, and you're, I'm trying to figure out, am I, you know, am I being reasonable or am I just kind of? True. The constant question. Yeah. Like, how much can we trust our own instincts about ourselves and our lives? Yes. So very limited brains. Yeah. So I was totally invested in, in Marta's perspective mm -hmm. and they yeah. are with her. And then I was just like, wait, what the <laughs> damn it? I think, um, I think I envision Marta as being to some extent aware of her own slippages and um, the sort of the sort of danger that um, is represented through her drinking and the risk there. But I think she cannot she cannot look at it directly. Mm. She can only sort of look at it through the veil of she's always placing a veil of like beauty and legend and story around all of her experiences. Um, and so I think that 
I think that, you know, eventually she's asked in the book, uh, you know, through through uh, Nick's relationship with the mother and how that's sort of revealed in the story, she's asked to confront it head on and to look at it directly. And she doesn't like what she sees. Um, and it's been, I think, I think the book, um, her nar narration in the book is sort of an evasive project where mm. she's like, I want to look at, at beautiful things. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to see, I want to see the things that I'm doing, even though they are problematic through a lens of beauty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, you know, I have a long twisted relationship with alcohol and reading. <laughs> and, yeah. I was going to ask you about that, but <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that. It did reading the book, like made it feel so romantic, you know, yeah. for, for the longest time until, you know, Nick's coming home and, you know, right. I'll, you know, the reality of it comes to the forefront like that girl was it a girl that was doing some trick on like a parking meter and fell and uh-huh yeah. yeah like those little snippets where you're like oh yeah that's what it's really like um <laughs> for sure uh but yeah you did you have a way of conveying beauty even for things that are tricky like drinking <laughs> mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. what's i mean are you open to talking about kind of your yeah absolutely. relationship with yeah yeah well i mean um i think i think like like marta i i don't know how far back we need to go but i guess i guess this does tie into the sort of evangelical christian household because i was a very very well-behaved kid all the way through high school. I did not hit any sort of rebellious bumps. Um, I was a, I was a church attending, you know, God worshiping little teenager wearing like the, the Christian band t-shirts and, and I didn't drink, I didn't smoke weed. I didn't smoke a cigarette. And then I got to college, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I know this is like, this is such a, you know, it's such a cliche really, but like, but, uh, but yeah, you know, there were, and I went to a Southern all women's college, so it felt so safe to, to drink there. Mm. You know, there was a girl um, who was like an RA on our dorm hall freshman year that was giving us um, strawberries soaked in moonshine at like hall meetings, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it was just, it was so normalized and it was so fun and it felt so sort of adult, but you're also engaging with a childlike part of your your mind and your nature and you're re-encountering like a childlike glow around things um but the thing that the the hiccup that i've encountered with drinking is that i am too good of a drinker so i don't you know like i i'm never that far deviated from myself uh -huh. i never black out i rarely get sick I, and so like it never felt problematic for so long because I saw my friends going off the deep end mm -hmm. and doing crazy shit. Mm -hmm. Sorry, can I say? Yes, please. No. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> doing crazy shit. And um, we say all the words on the situation and story. All, all the words. All the words. Um, so, yeah. And then I was like, I, as I... You know, I, I sometimes think it's due to like my 
deeply Irish constitution, but but my whole family is sort of a a, a family of disciplined, you know, like measured. Mm. We're just we're just jolly. We're just conversational. And we might drink to the point of having a little headache in the morning. But like beyond that, there aren't really any vast, huge consequences. Mm -hmm. So that can be normalized so easily when it doesn't feel like it's a loud problem. Right. If, if it becomes a problem, it's the quietest most, you know, and I think it, I think for Marta, it, it feels like a sort of similar starting point where it's like, this is fun. This is a way for me to connect with my brother. This is, you know, a celebration mm -hmm. of life and of beauty. Um, but it gets away from her as, as it, as it can. And as it, as it often does. Right. Well, I never had a like come to Jesus moment with my drinking. I just came to be like, you can't, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can't go on forever um thinking that you have the mind and body of a 20 year old right so that's that's really where we're at with that yeah i didn't i didn't drink till i was 19 mm, same um so which i don't know if that's good or bad thing but like I was that Christian teenager as well. I, I mean, I still was a little rebellious. Like I was a little like punk rocker, skateboarder mm -hmm. chick, but um, I was really, really repressed. So yeah. yeah, drinking like afforded me like the ability to feel things again, which then, I mean, then it became a way to not feel things ultimately. But right. <laughs> that's that is that is a dangerous shift when you go from yeah yeah so the numbing, the numbing phase yeah it's tricky it sounds similar yeah i was i wasn't a skateboarder because i as i told you i was never coordinated right. but i always shopped in like the cheerful part of hot topic uh -huh. you know? <laughs> yeah. like the care bear t-shirts yeah. um care bear t-shirts uh, like army green cargo shorts, wallet chain. Yeah, there maybe you go. Had, yeah, maybe had like the wrist, um, the leather wristband. Yeah. And uh, and and a love for Jesus in my heart. So. Absolutely, I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious about the bands that you listen to. Oh, I loved. Um, I loved a. Oh God, I loved a Christian ska punk band called Five Iron Frenzy. Oh, me too. Oh, are we the same? You age? <laughs> no but yeah it's so fun and their um their split off band that was how was it i forget now you got me thinking about that i forget what they were called but they had a well a, there was roper no. which was uh reese roper's solo project no not that one i don't know i'll have to look it up later but um yeah, I was. Oh, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about Brave Saint Saturn. That's the one. That's yeah. The one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is trippy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was into it. I was into it. Um, oh, man, if your listeners go and look these bands up, they're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Listening to Brave Saint Saturn. Yeah, another big. Have you tried to revisit this stuff? any in any recent context i 
I do like some of Brave Saint Saturn stuff. I think it's intense and and cool, and it was creative for what was going on at the time. Yeah. Um, but like, I also had a real big thing for Audio Adrenaline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh yeah, I was a little younger at that time, but yeah, to go back and listen to that, I'm like, oh my god. What I still you? know all the words to dc talks jesus freak yeah i had a feeling that was coming too yeah yeah i can do the raps um, oh. in quotation marks um, oh man it's more just sort of spoken rhyme it's like the whitest rap that could ever exist ever but, yeah yeah oh man um so where'd you grow up I grew up in Carbondale, Illinois, which is like oh the southern part. It's almost Kentucky. The right. almost Kentucky of Illinois. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I had, when I was 13, I had a fall that oh. kind of changed the trajectory of my life. I, I like to think it did. Not in a positive way, but um, it was kind of that that like led me into this teenage uh, youth group cult kind of thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I had a, a bike accident and um fell I not that far four feet maybe but onto concrete and yeah. onto my mouth um and so you know it was bad it was pretty bad yeah. scary um, yeah the like most vulnerable part of your face like this yeah <laughs> yeah um but so it kind of left me you know slightly disfigured um and then you know we were poor and my parents you know we never did anything about it so I I grew up with these like really gnarly hideous teeth and that kind of like drove me into the arms of like the church youth group and this um sense of community and that i'm loved anyway even though you know oh yeah um so like i was that's the place where gnarly teeth are loved right yeah Yeah. (laughs) but it's but it's like uh you know i said i was kind of writing about that that's so that's my memoir is about that fall and about kind of uh I'm looking at the connections between feeling so like the fall of man, right? The initial, the original sin and how at such a vulnerable age, not only did I kind of like hate myself, but (laughs) I was part of this group, this organization that believed that I was fundamentally flawed that we all are. And just like the, the awful self-hatred that can be underneath that. So I, you know, I had another, that was another way in which I kind of really related to the book. Um, and I have dreams a lot about people falling from high heights. Like usually it's usually in a city and I can see that they're either going to jump or fall. And I like turn my head away. But what I always remember is hearing the sound of their body hitting the concrete. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. So that was like, that was in my head a lot during, uh, when reading the book, but I don't know, just some kind of interesting connections. Yeah. Dark. I, 
I was okay. I was eight, seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And my family was vacationing in Toronto. And uh, we were staying at this big hotel in the city, this like high rise hotel. And, um, and I remember us walking out the doors of this hotel on the, onto the sidewalk. And there was like the classic crime show tape, you know, that lines a dead body in crime shows. It was yeah. like on the sidewalk and um, someone had jumped and oh. it's just like, there was just tape and then like a little bit of a a little bit of a splatter, you know, like a stain in the middle of it. And I was like eight and I was like, mom, dad, what's this? And they were like, oh, someone fell, you know, like it's such an easy sort of euphemism for, for, for this particular brand of suicide. Someone fell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was convinced and I was haunted by that. Yeah. I was, I was convinced, like most most of the way through the book, that Nick jumped. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I was too, actually. Oh yeah. I, I probably shouldn't reveal that. Like, I didn't know. I I didn't know at the beginning of the book what like the ending was going to be. But that's how, that's how I tend to write. Is I'm often discovering things along with the characters. No, that's so. really good to know. Because you're like, oh yeah, I just wrote it in eight months, and that was it. And I'm like, what? <laughs> um we were all in it together me and marta and nick yeah Yeah, i bet oh my god and then the parents the the mom i just yeah i feel for her by the end thank god like she became more human by the end but i was like you know i came out when i was 19 wasn't that extreme but definitely like the whole uh, God narrative and, you know, this isn't wrong and I love you, but I don't love your lifestyle and, and being kicked out of the church too. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was like, and then, um, Oh my God, that scene when he just starts detailing his sexual, Mm. you know, experiences with. And my editor really pushed me on that. He I had a very tame, I had some very tame content from Nick, and he was like, This is some wishy-washy gay sex. I don't believe <laughs> all. Really? And he, yeah, yeah. He was like, he was like, You need to you need to spruce this up, spruce spice it up. up. <laughs> spice up this sex. And I was like, Oh, okay, Daniel, I'll I'll do my best. And I'm, then, and- I'm always such a prude writing about sex, and- but I I think it went. I, I think it turned out myself. well. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, and then, and then again, another spoiler alert. Um, their dad just like drops dead. Yeah. So like you, you guys are living, or probably especially Nick, not you guys. It's a novel. Your narrator <laughs> and Nick are living with this fear that, mm-hmm. oh, I you know I caused my dad to die oh there's just so much there's just so much in that book yeah yeah um so let's talk about you mentioned your editor briefly but Mm -hmm. my scariest part of writing is the revision oh yeah oh yeah so i'm curious how'd that go (laughs) yeah i mean it changes your relationship to a book Mm -hmm. um it definitely does. 
and I I felt like the book was finished, but of course you you then you send it out. I sent it to my agent, and she you know um, she sent it out, uh, and we got we got a book deal with Bloomsbury, which I was so over the moon about. And then it was like really the work began right. because the writing of the book hadn't felt like work at all. Yeah. Um, and so yeah that was sort of the like now we're getting our like you know cleaning gloves on and like elbow grease and down on our knees scrubbing the floors of this thing so um it was work and it was hard um but i really did luck out because um <laughs> daniel is so uh so eager to compromise like he's he really had no problems with humoring me unless I was just flat out wrong which a couple times I was mm -hmm. but um but I mean it, it also it's it's like there's a certain vulnerability about it too because this person is coming to your work and they're showing you things about your writing that you are too close to it to recognize mm -hmm. so he's like Renee, you use the word tiny on like every single page of this book. <laughs> I think I saw that in your like acknowledgments or something in the back of the book. Obsessive use of, and I mean, it, it sort of makes sense for Marta because she's kind of obsessed with scale and the largeness and smallness of things. But I, it's, it's also apparently like a word tick that just yeah. I... You know, there's certain words that we kind of like gravitate toward and latch hold of. And tiny is one of them. And, you know, Daniel wasn't even the first person to, to point out to me that I used the word tiny. So <laughs> is that one of the instances where you're talking about being flat out wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't I, I didn't push for like you know, I need every tiny to stay in the book. Right. <laughs> okay, yeah, we're gonna lose some tinies because yeah. there's too many. But uh but no, I mean like there were there were um there were some like lyrical descriptions that I I fought for and there were some where he was like, I don't think this fits in this moment and I think it slows down the action and he was right and I was wrong. Um, but there are times where I like the editing process reveals to you what you are willing to fight for, because if you feel passive about a change that's being suggested, then, you know, you, you know, like it's like, you know, that it's probably right. Right. Because I wrote it this way, but this way also makes sense. But then when a change is being suggested where something's being cut that you're absolutely in love with. You're like, I will fight, you know, I will fight to the death over this. And yeah. Daniel's like, you don't have to fight to the death. It's fine. We can keep <laughs> right. <laughs> gearing up for like a boxing match. Right. And he's like, oh, that's great. I'm glad that you like that you wrote that. It can stay. <laughs> <laughs> but you kind of sort of learn what, you know, who you are as a writer and what hill you'll die on kind of thing. What will you'll die on? Exactly. What's worth fighting for to you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting to hear the idea of flat out wrong when it comes <laughs> to editing because of how, you know, in my MFA, 
program I heard, you know, a hundred million times. It's not, you know, everybody's going to come to it with a different opinion. There mm-hmm. is no right or wrong. You know, you're going to get this feedback from one person and the exact opposite from the next. Um, so it just was interesting to hear you say there were certain instances where you're like, no, he was right on that. I was right on that. But mm-hmm. I, but you probably more just mean like what you're willing to live with as the writer. Yeah. And, you know, it's <clears throat> such an instinctual thing. Yeah. Um, but I think... I don't know. I think um, I think maybe as a general rule, the writer is like writing for their ideal reader and the editor is sort of hoping to open that up just a little bit. It's like it can be your ideal reader and like 12 of their close friends. Okay. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. let's put in the, you know, let's direct it outward a little more. Yeah. Uh, because my ideal reader wants to read like four pages of street description about you know the beauty of i think you got i think you found me that's why i'm like this person book is perfect it is it's so it is lyrical it is it is so descriptive and uh i i mean i kind of write that way too so maybe that's why i'm partial to it but we need more i'm like i'm like so pro lyricism really you know i absolutely i i I do not believe in, you know, like it's, it's not like I think that writing is very dry and straightforward is bad. I just, I just feel like there's been um, sort of, I feel like lyricism became the underdog at some point. Like it used to be like, you know, romantic poets, flower power. And then it was like Raymond Carver, Hemingway. And now we're like, we don't know how we feel about. Yeah. About dense language, right. um, poetic language and prose, but I, I, I think like, I think dense descriptive language and prose and lyrical writing is like a celebration of language and yeah. a celebration of life, and like I believe so hard in it. Me so too. I get like the sense, and this is a fear I have even about writing my own book right now. Is like it feels like it's not relevant anymore. Uh people uh don't want that yeah so like you know uh, as a writer you know you're supposed to be building a platform and you know i write essays and have essays published but they're very lyrical it's not something you're gonna read in like i don't know one of the bigger publications that uh that i don't know people seem to want to get um so i guess i have this fear like where do you know where does that writing belong so i don't know it's really cool to see that got picked up by bloomsbury yeah i i'm a lucky duck and Uh, yeah i I, you'll find your audience too and it's it's gonna be brilliant yeah we'll see (laughs) (laughs) um so what are you working on now? You have you said you have a another kind of novel project going. Yeah, my 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 long, arduous, um, like seven year project. Uh, I'm dusting it off. So not an eight month thing. Not an eight month <laughs> thing. No. Seven years. Yeah, dude. I'm, yeah. What is it's, the 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it overlaps with Defenestrate only in that, like, it's similarly interested in um, family dynamic and how that relates to storytelling. But um, the the sort of central plot, I, I guess, is it's 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 not a plotty book. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. But um, but the story within the book is that um, it's a family. Uh, you've got mom, dad, two sisters um, or two daughters. And when uh, the youngest daughter is eight and the oldest daughter is 13, their mother leaves for a month and is away for a month and comes back um, and resumes her life with her family with basically no explanation as to where she went or what she was doing um and this is this is a novel that really investigates like the echoes of experiences like mm. across you know across a whole lifetime mm -hmm. so um when the the daughters are grown up they kind of revisit the idea of this month and they're mythologizing it in many ways mm -hmm. um and they're they're projecting their own kind of uh, understanding on it um and they're re-inhabiting their memories of what that month was like for them when she was away um and they're also um taking action um to sort of like the 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 oldest daughter she's a very she's a very active character because we gotta we gotta have at least one very active character okay. that does stuff right you know? That's the rule for lyrical writers because otherwise everyone's just sitting around thinking. Right. Stuff, um, which is what I do in my free time anyway. Um, so, uh, so the oldest daughter, she, um, she like steals the family truck and she runs away to Mississippi to uh, when she's 19 to um, have an ill-advised marriage with a, a towboat pilot. Um, and the mother and the youngest daughter follow her down there to try and like, you know, intervene and get her to come back home. Um, so this is what's going on in the book. Uh, it alternates between the two daughters' perspectives and they kind of share the telling of um, their relationships to their mom. The mother is sort of like the spine mm. of the family. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so cool. that's that's that one. I cannot wait i really can't i mean i read a lot uh for the podcast and otherwise and really this was such a refreshing i think you're my new favorite writer i'm just gonna go ahead and say it <laughs> so i'm so delighted you're definitely my new favorite podcast oh stop i'm not trying to flatter you i'm serious um this makes me think about writing so writing the story of my accident mm -hmm. more lyrically than it's written currently i encourage it and i mean i like, don't know if you're asking me if i wanted to weigh in but well no yeah i would love to have your <laughs> input but it's so like it's a gnarly traumatic kind of yeah. gruesome thing yeah and right now it's kind of written from that 13 year old's point of view as it's happening. I mean, I just, I'm constantly unsure of what point of view it should be from who should be writing it, the child self or the me now. And mm -hmm. ugh, it's difficult. It is. <laughs> I, 
I, have you tried both and you know yeah like, really both and I, I, I like them both <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just you know I haven't touched this book in a couple of years to be completely honest and the other day I'm a public school teacher we had like a testing day so it wasn't a normal day with kids but somehow with my this is my new co-workers this is the first year I've been there it somehow came up um you know one of my co-workers is like a lit major and so we talk about books and stuff so I pulled it up on the screen and and it suddenly became I we're reading the story of my accident and more and more people are coming into the room and I'm like wait a second this is like there's something here this is engaging people are into it um but we did we read both versions the one that i wrote uh from my childhood point of view and then the one that's more this is what happened then mm -hmm. and i can't decide i can't so this is part of the reason i don't touch the writing i'm just like i <laughs> like i need it to be perfectly exactly what it's supposed to be or i'm not gonna fuck with it right which is so right. debilitating you know i'm the one example i can think where there's sort of like almost a wavering between both perspectives is um joanne beard um she has a very short piece called in the current and it's the first piece in her book um the boys her collection what's her collection called boys of my youth yeah beautiful collection um but yeah, in the current, and it's really just her narrating this single event where she watched someone, she watched, a, she um, was a kid at the time of the occurrence. I think she was probably like nine years old, right. maybe 10. And uh, she's watching these teenagers swimming and one of them gets swept up in the current of this river and is carried downstream. And she is watching from a ledge. She's removed from the action. She sees everything going on and she does nothing. And the the teenager's okay. They pull him out and he's like, I thought that little girl was going to be the last thing that I saw on this earth, you know? And she she's telling it in a sort of very close, like a retrospective, but it's very close to her childhood perspective. And it it's so perfect. It ends with her just being so aware at how, in in this teenager seeing her as like the last image of his life that she has these very baggy shorts on and that she's very embarrassed about how the the last image he would have seen alive would have been these baggy shorts like hanging about her hips uh -huh. it's perfect it's like a perfect piece of writing but i i recommend it only because it it is so delicately dancing between being really close to that child perspective and also having a kind of retrospective nature of like when my family when i was young my family took these vacations you know right. so yeah that might be yeah i'm that book uh you know since i started started my mfa that's the number one book that's always recommended to me and i still haven't touched it <laughs> but you've read um you've read the fourth state of matter though no 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 oh. That's a perfect essay. That is, yeah. Oh, yeah. You got to read the Four State of Matter. All right. It's in that collection. Okay. It's in that collection. 
I think uh, I have. I think I have the book. I just, yeah, I need to. I, and that's the other thing. It's like, you know, if I read, all these people are like, you have to read this. It's so, you know, it's similar to your work or it's really going to help your work. Then I avoid it because... <laughs> so I don't have to do the work. Yeah, I I am a mess. I'm a mess. So I did it. It's like I want to keep me me. You know, I don't want. Yeah, uh, want to start writing like Alice Monroe. But well, I mean, I kind of do actually. But yeah. All right. Well, um, last thing I tend to kind of ask is about you know what you're reading lately or what what you would. 110% recommend we read next oh gosh um I just read um I just read three women um what's her, oh gosh what's her name um non-fiction uh she's brilliant she did this reportage do you know about this book three girls no Three, three women. Sorry, three women. they're 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 grown. Lisa to Tadeo or Ted. Yes. Yeah. Her. Yes. That's another so, one I have that I haven't read yet. Yeah, this is another kind of hybrid situation because it's nonfiction, but it's 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 written in the style of fiction. But she did like extensive reportage on the lives of these three women. Okay. Um, in order to tell their stories. And um, she narrates them beautifully and inhabit, inhabits them beautifully. And they're just sort of three situations of women in romantic or sexual relationships that are shocking or revealing or just um, true, you know, just real. Yeah. Uh, but I, I found it an incredible book. Um, I think I think we all probably should should be reading it um <laughs> the last book that i just read that i just like that i just like enjoyed you know like it was just like a pleasure to read was um claire v watkins battleborn her short story collection okay she's like a new mexico writer and all of her stories are sort of um you know, set in the desert, but they, they range across time. And, um, you know, she has like a gold rush story in there. And then she also has sort of like, uh, teenagers drinking in parking lots and, nice. uh, and driving, you know, road trips to Las Vegas and they're beautifully written and they're smart. And, um, I think they're up our alley. It's, it's very lyrical. She has the like, oh, what's her, what, sorry, what's her last name? Watkins, Claire Vey Watkins. But yeah, she has those good similes, you know, that you can sink your teeth into. Yeah. I'm sure you, you saw that I'm obsessed with the similes. And really freaking good at them. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never, I never tired of them and I never felt like they were repetitive because, you know, some people, some books are, it's like, all right, but it's like fresh every time. It's a perfect book. <laughs> thank well, you so much. yeah i really appreciate you sitting down with me i cannot wait for the next novel i'll let you know all right cool